This is the hashtag CNF podcast, a conversation with writers and artists about creating works of nonfiction. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. This week, I welcome Mary Heather Noble, an environmental writer who won Creative Nonfiction's Editor's Prize in issue 61's Learning from Nature edition. Her essay, Eulogy for an Owl, is a magnificent piece of writing and particularly profound for me as it talks about moving out west from the east coast and the latent guilt of leaving bitter family behind. And just so you know, the missus and I are totally down, but we received our fair share of guilt trips, which is particularly maddening but that's neither here nor there we're here to talk about mary heather's work and her approach some housekeeping share this episode with someone you think will get value from it subscribe if you haven't already leave a five-star review in your directory of choice all these things help a lot makes me feel good so let's just dive in here's mary heather noble Again for coming on the podcast this is great and um, and congratulations for winning the editor's prize for your essay eulogy for an owl. Thank you. Yeah. So first, you know, uh, in in your in the blurb or that um, your little bio for the essay, it says that um, you know your writing is influenced by environmental issues f- by being a former environmental regulator, and um, wanted to start off by saying like, what did that? role entail and then how did that start to inform a lot of the work that came afterwards? Yeah. Um, well, I worked as an environmental regulator, uh, for, uh, it was about six years, both in the States of New Mexico and Connecticut. And, um, I would say that, um, it, it kind of provides the lens for a lot of my work. The, uh, so my work as an environmental scientist really does, um, it, it provides like a lens that, you know, I, I look through for um, all of my writing in many ways. Uh, so did you have a particular uh, discipline as an environmental scientist, like wetlands or, you know, arbor, arboreal stuff, or was it more all encompassing? Right. So when I started, um, I worked in permitting. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for the Groundwater Quality Bureau in New Mexico um, and their environment department. And there we were really focused on pollution prevention. And uh, so I, I dealt with a variety of industries. Um, we dealt with municipal wastewater treatment plants. We dealt with um, industrial operations like um, generating stations, mines. Um, we dealt with agricultural operations. Um, and so that was a lot of just regulating uh, waste streams uh, with the goal of protecting groundwater resources. Um, and then when I moved to New Mexico and worked for the environment department there, um, my focus was more on investigation and remediation of contaminated sites. And so I've kind of had, you know, the, the full gamut, if you will. I've, I've looked at, you know, prevention of pollution and then kind of the, the investigation and, and cleaning it up after the fact. And I would say most of my creative nonfiction pieces um, have really been more so influenced by my work in Connecticut, the kind of after the fact the uh, legacy of um, industrial operations and kind of, you know, the, the silent messes underground, if you will. Yeah. 
Yeah, my uh, my wife, uh, when we lived in upstate New York, you know, in Saratoga Springs area for, for a time, uh, she worked for Ecology and Environment in, in Arcadis, these two consulting firms. But she worked for a long time on the uh, the Superfund dredging site of the Hudson River mm-hmm. uh, for GE, that Superfund uh, site. So she was, like, you know, very involved with that as the dredging started, you know, up by yeah. the GE plant in Fort Edward. Right, so like right. yeah, so that's exactly what you're saying. The some of this um, and the PCBs there. So like this legacy, legacy type stuff. This cleaning up of a uh, historic mess that took place yeah. decades ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, for me, one of the things that I just kind of fixate on um, in my work is just the amount of time that it takes to recognize and address these problems. I mean, it's, you know, generations go by mm-hmm. uh, where progress is really made. Um, and, and there seems to be little regard uh, for the generations that are potentially impacted. And so that that's kind of a, a thing that I tend to focus on. Yeah, there's a, I'm going to butcher the quote, and it, you see it all the time, just in the practices of of people. It's they're so they're so short sighted that they think they mistake that we inherit the earth instead of like borrowing it from the future. Right. Uh, like it's that that whole idea. There's just never any uh, forward. There's very little forward looking, especially if you're looking how the EPA has just been gutted and everything that's going on right now. It's just such a slap in the face to future generations and to the work that's come before it to just get some fundamental safeguards in place for safe air, uh, clean air, clean water. And then it's just to see it erode away is kind right. of, is just devastating. There seems to be just uh, all priorities placed on, you know, short-term financial gain and um, just a general um, failure to recognize that we're kind of animals in the system too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a fine it's a delicate web of interactions, and uh, you also you know write about that too about um, in in terms of uh, conservation. You know what role do we play in helping preserve the the populations of certain animals? Do you, do you let nature play out, or do we meddle in it because our influence has so negatively affected them? So we we actually have to maybe play a role in trying to balance the ecosystem. It's a, it's a right. fine, fine balance. That's something I wanted to ask you about. We might as well just talk about that a little bit now. Sure. Because, yeah, you, I think, um, yeah, if I get the passage right here, um, it's gonna, sort of like midway through your essay. You say, um, you know, of course, one of the goals of conservation biology is to preserve biodiversity within an ecosystem and make sure the health of the ecosystem is maintained so no species go extinct. But another, sometimes contradictory goal, is to allow the system to evolve naturally, allow species to do what they would naturally do. So what is natural in this case? And, um, you know, you, you also say, like, unnatural, natural selection. And, uh, like, speak to that point of what uh, what that means exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, I think... Uh, this idea of natural selection is is that idea that you know conservation biology would preserve just kind of the the natural tendency of evolution. You know, that just allow species to kind of play out their their competitiveness and um, and just you know kind of uh, let let the process uh, unfold without intervention. But um, 
But, you know, given the influences that we have in our and our society has on um, other species, there is kind of this, I think, uh, sense of, well, um, you know, we've unfairly stacked the odds for one species over another, and therefore that's not really natural. It would be an unnatural natural selection. And so, you know, maybe our moral obligation is to right that wrong and try to, you know, put it back to put, put the picture back to the way it was. And I think, you know, it really gets at the heart of uh, whether people perceive themselves to be part of a natural system or not part of a natural system. And, um, and that is a, 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 a difficult question yeah. <laughs> to answer. I think that's kind of a philosophical question for a lot of people, you know, whether or not we are in fact, um, you know, animals in an environment or whether or not we're somehow above it and, and um, simply influencing it or being the te- caretakers of it. And I, you know, I don't personally, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and it, it's just an interesting nuance that, um, that I like to circle around. Yeah. So when you were thinking about, uh, think uh, before you got to the, the hard writing of eulogy for an owl, what was the, the hard thinking that went into it before you started drafting and how did you come to this as something? Okay. All right. This is, I know, I know there's something here. I've got three to 4,000 words right. cooking. How did you start to approach it and think through it? Well, I will say that I actually started this essay a, a, quite a long time ago when I was living in Bend. I had I have sort of a, a little obsession with owls. <laughs> They're and, cool, um, cool animals. <laughs> they are cool animals. And, um, you know, living up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, just brings you really close to the spotted owl um, issues out there. And um, I'd had a couple of encounters just with you know, great horde owls and things like that. So I actually started this essay years ago where, uh, there's, there's sections in there, I think where I've, uh, talked about the high desert museum and it's, um, they have like the, they had a spotted owl ambassadors there. And, um, I actually had done the research about the Walt Disney part of the essay, um, and his eulogy for now and his story, or it was actually Paul Harvey's eulogy for now talking about Walt Disney mm-hmm. and um, his childhood encounter with an owl. And I, you know, it was an essay that I, I, I was just fascinated by the, by the subject. And it wasn't until I moved back East and, um, and encountered this owl, <laughs> this barred owl while just kind of walking in the woods, um, that the sort of emotional charge uh, came to light for me. Um, you know, before it was just kind of a, a creative nonfiction sort of research based thing that didn't have any pow to it. It didn't, it didn't really have a story behind it. It was just kind of a, a fascination for me. And then, um, when I, when I moved back East and I saw this owl and I, you know, it kind of, um, made me pull the, the old piece out of the drawer and look at it again. Um, I sort of realized, uh, for me anyway, there was there were some parallels between my East-West kind of identity crisis and uh, the story of barred owls and their westward migration and and the influence that that westward migration has had on spotted owls and their population. And so it wasn't until um, you know it wasn't until many years after I had started the piece that I really saw 
the story behind it, you know, it was more um, just information that I had had accumulated and put into a drawer and then uh, had to resurrect after I, you know, I found the emotional um, kernel in there. Yeah, you, you touch upon a real important principle and theme when it comes to writing something that's especially that has a personal braid throughout the whole thing. And that's and that becomes like distance from the uh, distance from the peace and distance from the heart heart of it to maybe to find the heart of it. So like right. how 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 important is that to maybe resist the urge to power through and maybe stick it in a drawer and then revisit it when you're like, oh yeah, there's that there's that thing I was working on. You know, maybe make it more of a conscious thing and have that patience. Like, how important is that in a piece of writing, especially like this one? Yeah, I think actually it's really important, and it is a lesson that has taken me a long time to learn. I think you know when you're um, really interested in a topic, or um, you know, I tend to be motivated by, you know, maybe it's an image uh, that just fascinates me, or you know, I, I tend to, I had this mentor, um, in my graduate school program who, who talked about, um, writers kind of sniffing around for ideas, like <laughs> almost like a dog, you, do, you you just sort of sniff around and you're, you're pulled in certain directions. And, and there is this, um, compulsion to just kind of honor that, that attraction. And I think when you're, um, when you're interested in something, it is kind of hard to, put it away or, or you think, Oh, this is so great. I, I just really, I have something here. And, um, and it, I think for me, one of the hardest things is, is knowing when, you know, when you reach the limits of, of something and, or, or maybe it's just kind of, it needs to rise like bread first before you can take it any further. Um, or you need to let it cool before you frost it kind of thing. Right. Um, so I think, uh, that, that for me is just taken, some years of experience to figure out. Um, and I, and I think I kind of know that now where I know not to throw writing away. I know to sort of just put it aside and, and hide it and, and, um, and know that, you know, eventually someday I may use pieces of that. So, uh, it's, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm recognizing for me, writing is a little bit more like, uh, almost like quilt making where you, you know, you keep these other parts, um, and, and less like, you know, materializing from, from thin air. It's, you know, I tend to recycle things. Um, yeah, yeah like it's, what's interesting, um, uh, Kim Kankowitz, who was on a few episodes ago and she won in, uh, an essay contest in creative nonfiction in the joy issue. Yeah. And, um, she, what was really interesting about her essay she had this essay kind of cooking around and didn't quite know what to do with it and um, didn't quite have the focus that she wanted. But mm -hmm. as soon as she got the sort of the, the theme prompt from the magazine, it kind of, it coalesced and it like, she was able to shoehorn it towards that one, that oh, one right, goal right. and it like totally crystallized the focus and did and it totally worked for her and it worked out brilliantly. It's a beautiful essay and, and she, yeah. she won the prize. And I wonder if, if something, um, it maybe happened with the owl essay or maybe it happened with something else, but did you, sometimes do you find that an external prompt of that nature sometimes like, Oh yeah, I can take that. And now I can write to that prompt and make this thing something that I didn't envision at the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that's, 
that's definitely the case um, with this with this piece. You know, the um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would say I had picked it up um, again after encountering the owl in um, in the forest. But yeah, I would say you know that it's definitely true that for that, you know it works for me too. Where a call for submissions will um, identify a theme or something that that uh, really um, kind of sparks. Um, and highlights an opportunity with a piece of work that I'd put away. Um, and it's actually, I mean, that's one of the best feelings to, you know, have this like, Oh, I have, I have something for that, um, that I can, that I can resurrect and work on. And it's, um, it just really energizes the work. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's an opportunity to sort of rise to the challenge to, uh, see if, see if you can make it fit. Um, and that was definitely the case here. Yeah, and uh, and so what were what was the process like as you were sort of working through this essay? How, how did you approach it, and um, you know what were what were those drafting sessions like, and the reworking, and you know what kind of notes did you receive? You know, like what was your how did you approach it to get it from you know the point A to point Z? Yeah, so um, so I had had a little bit of research. Uh, basically, it was kind of like I had all these different clippings about owls, if you will. Mm-hmm. I had um, some research about uh, spotted owl and the impact of the barred owl on the spotted owl population, and I um, kind of fleshed that out a little bit more. I had my own um, notes about just encounters I'd had with owls, and um, and uh, I had kind of the the thread about how I felt about you know, my East West, um, transitions. And really what I did is kind of look for points of this intersection, uh, between all the threads that I had in front of me. I really like to work with the braided form and, um, and that, and that kind of, uh, you know, it's like I'll I'll have like five or three or four different threads that seem relevant to the theme. And I'll see, you know, if there's connections between those threads and, and figure out a way you know, something can kind of naturally come together. Um, in this piece, because the um, the call for submissions and the theme for the issue was learning from nature, that's that was really for me the opportunity to kind of um, zoom out and and look at conservation and the ethics of conservation from sort of a ten thousand foot level. Um, that that's what really um, for me kind of drove drove this particular piece because that was really the element by which I could kind of shoehorn it into this particular theme. Um, and so, you know, it was initiated, um, just by my own personal story and kind of my own personal dilemma. And I had, you know, some of the research sort of in a drawer. So I pulled all that out and then, um, and really ultimately it was the, the broader issue and the broader call for submissions and what we learned from nature, um, that was, kind of the driving force to enable me to put it all together. And what did you feel that you, that you did learn from this particular experience? Like what was your big takeaway from this, from the, from the interactions, of the owls and that push and pull from the East and West? For me personally, it's, it's kind of like you, you, um, you know, I, I, I've always kind of wanted to have control over a situation and, I think for me, the sort of takeaway was this relaxing into like, I am as much a part of this system as these other elements. And, 
there are factors that push and pull you in one way or another. And, um, you know, for me, the kind of personal conclusion that I came to was that, you know, our family made a decision to come back because, uh, you know, we felt like our connection to our broader family was kind of in danger. And, and given, you know, my husband's circumstances with his job, we, we needed to make a change. And, um, and that's kind of what, what brought us back. Um, and to sort of, uh, you know, draw the parallel to, um, the natural world, I think there's just this, um, you know, we, I, I don't really know, uh, what, what's going to happen, but I think there, there does need to be this acknowledgement that, um, you know, we have this role and we, we, um, we do have the influences over the natural world and, and there is sort of a moral obligation, but I think there needs to be this recognition that, you know, we, we are part of this system too. And yeah, it's, it's hard to articulate. I, I can't really say that, um, you know, I have like a, a very clear takeaway message. Maybe the, the, the brilliance and the great success of the essay you wrote was that it, it doesn't just answer things for you. It actually makes you question your space in, in the world. And so that in a, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's good tender for these types of ethical conversations about conservation and you know, what it means to be part or fractured from a family. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, really for me, that's kind of, that gets to the heart of the thing. There, there is just a real, um, disconnect. Um, certainly in my personal circumstance, there was a disconnect between us and our family. Um, and I, I would, I would argue that there's the same disconnect between us and our natural world. And, um, you know, that's kind of, you know, the thing that sort of struck me when I was researching this whole thing um, I had researched and writ, um, read this article uh, written by a conservation biologist who talked about just the ethical dilemma of, you know, having an owl in his crosshairs and that it kind of went against every grain of his of his being to be in that position. And um, and I think, you know, that to me is sort of the beauty of it. Somebody who just recognizes his connection. And I think, you know, most of us don't have that similar kind of, um, uh, depth of understanding, um, of our connection to the natural world. What was the, the moment, if you can pinpoint a moment or a watershed, if you will, of, of moments when you went from, from your environmental regulator life to wanting to become more to become a writer and write about a lot of these experiences what 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 was going on in in your head that you you wanted to make that transition yeah um I would say so I I've always wanted to write and um I guess I just regarded it more as a hobby for many years um while I was working in the environmental sector and then I took some some time to have kids and raise them. And that, that really gave me the opportunity to resurrect my writing. And I really felt this calling to kind of, uh, sort of bear witness to, to the kind of work that I had done. I mean, I I think, you know, many people, it's not, it's certainly not like people don't understand, uh, super fun sites or know that there's industrial contamination, but I, but I don't think people really, fully deeply understand, 
um, just how um, pervasive it is and how common it is and how truly long it takes um, to fully investigate and understand a site and then even attempt to clean it up. And I think um, it's necessary for people to understand that if they're going to um, um, really protect uh, resources and protect human health and the environment in the future. And so for me, it was um, kind of driven by um, this desire to share my technical um, experience and, and, you know, kind of what I'd seen behind the curtain and um, figure out a way to do it in a, um, in a manner that wasn't terribly boring. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I like to um, write about, you know, sites that I've had or, um, you know, things I've witnessed in my work um, as an environmental scientist, but try to weave it in a way where there's always kind of a human element. You know, I think people like to read about other people. People like to read stories about people. And so um, I always try to focus on the um, human element of those experiences. Yeah, that's it. Otherwise, you're just looking at like um, academic papers that just have these statistics and numbers. But like, if you can glom on a narrative component to it, now you can. Now you're like this Sherpa, and you can really carry people through something that might seem esoteric or boring, very hard to get into. But it's just like what John McPhee made has been writing about for 50 years. You know, a lot of stuff he writes is on the surface you would say dull, but he engages right. with these critical people at the heart of a lot of these environmental issues. And then you can't help but be compelled by people trying to redirect the Mississippi river or cool lava coming out of Iceland or talk about oranges for 120 pages. It's right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you're exactly right. You need to like glom on that human element and uh, how that reflects the environment. And you can really talk about some important stuff, but make it and while making it very compelling. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, I, I'm moved by, by things that grab me because of the impact they have on things that I care about. Right. And I would say, uh, you know, that's, that's really kind of what, um, what drives the engine for me. If I'm, you know, I may be um, intellectually interested in some environmental issue, but um, I'm not going to be motivated to write about it unless there's that emotional kernel. And I'll give you an example. Like, um, there's been a lot in the news lately about uh, PFOA contamination in upstate New York and parts of um, southern Vermont, sort of a little region that uh, was it part of the Teflon industry. You know, they, they created um, products, uh, Teflon-related products, and um, there's this contaminant that has um, gotten into the water supply um, in some of these communities. And um, I had gone down to Hoosick Falls, New York, just to kind of, you know, sniff around and see if the see, see what interested me, see, see if there was anything um, that would compel me to write. And I, I stopped and went into their community center. And this is a community that is you know, used had a, a very proud industrial legacy at one point, but is now kind of, you know, in transition. And um, and so the community had this. It was like a, a community redevelopment uh, grant, and and they had this whole theme of instead of Hoosick Falls, it was Hoosick Rising, and mm -hmm. and so there was this attempt to sort of resurrect community pride, and 
um, I'd gone to the community center and they had this tree in there that had little index cards hanging from it with uh, things that they love about Hoosick Falls. I love Hoosick Falls because of this or that. And I looked at the the cards on the tree and there was one there um, that had been written by a little girl that said, I heart Hoosick Falls because it has a great pool to swim in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was there because of this water contamination, their public water supply. So this wasn't just an isolated well, you know, this was their public water system. And so to see, you know, a little kid expressed, you know, her love and affection for this town because of this pool and the water, it just, you know, it was something that just kind of got right to the heart of it for me. And it was almost like that moment in Aaron Brockovich where the kids are swimming in the pool and they realize like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this water's contaminated, get out of the pool. And, um, You know, so that for me was one of those glimmers that really captured me because, you know, you're you're looking now at a generation of kids and and what do kids do? They play in the water, they swim in the streams, they and that just um, highlights their method of exposure. And and it's um, it's very haunting. Yeah. Yeah. Can you point to any any particular essays or authors that have informed and influenced the, the work you're doing now? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, so I have kind of, uh, a couple of different groups of authors that I would say really influenced my work. You know, initially when I was really focused on kind of nature writing and environmental work, my sort of, um, literary heartthrobs in that regard are, um, I like that literary (laughs) heartthrobs. That's actually a term one of my, uh, mentors used and it was, you know, something that we would have to come, uh, prepared to talk about at our workshops, you know, give a presentation on your literary heartthrob. That's great. Um, so for me, one of my first ones was Terry Tempest Williams. Um, I just really love the way she can, um, write about a personal experience through a landscape that just was she was probably one of my earliest influences i love scott russell sanders and sandra steingraber um she definitely for me you know kind of has that rachel carson component and that um ability to write about the sort of human impact of um of very technical things like contamination. Kathleen Dean Moore is another writer that I really adore. She's she's actually a philosophy professor out of um, Oregon State University and just has um, this incredible ability to kind of join uh, human element, philo- you know, philosophy and environment. Um, so that's kind of, those are the, the ones from the environmental sort of nature writing section of the bookstore. And then I, I, I find myself um, drawn to a number of, of essayists and memoirists as well. I really like people who have experimented with structure and form. So like Eula Biss, Leslie Jameson, uh, Leah Purpura, um, Joni Tevis um, are some essayists that I definitely gravitate toward. Um, I will read pretty much anything written by Brian Doyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, gosh, Joan Wickersham and Abigail Thomas are a few, um, memoirists that I, you know, whose books I tend to go back to again and again, just because they sort of, they, uh, they've successfully written in fragments and, and I, that's just something that really interests me from a structural perspective. And is there, 
through all these writers, is there a commonality that you see among them that strikes a such a chord with you personally? And like, it just, you know, you know how those electrons just tend to align yeah. when you read someone like Have you noticed something among all of them that really just, you know, sparks, just sparks every, every neuron in, in your yeah. brain? I think, you know, I would say for all of them, um, the, the threads that are common to all of them are just this almost sensitivity and vulnerability. And, um, and they all just have this very quiet, very detailed power of observation. Um, and, and I think that's, that's probably why I'm drawn to all of those folks in particular. I really love the kind of distance of voice, but, but, um, but showing vulnerability in a, in a story, that's just something that just kind of wins me over every time. You know, when you're starting to you know, get into a project or even maybe you're between projects, like what does your routine look like or your morning routine as you're trying to win the morning and then try to get some meaningful work done? Like how do you win the, win the day in that sense? And oh, you know, maybe wow. that first like hour to 90 minutes of your day, what does that typically yeah. look like? Um, well, it sort of varies. I'm one of those writers that I kind of have spurts and, and dry spells. Um, I think partially because I've got kids and, you know, so I have to kind of work around that. A really good day for me is, you know, I get the kids off to school. I come back to an empty house. I'm able to successfully avoid any um, distractions or temptations from <laughs> looking at the news or anything like that and getting sucked into those rabbit holes. Ideally, I would have something that I've already kind of um, started. Um, so I already have uh, the clay on the wheel, if you will, mm-hmm. and um, and can just kind of uh, get into a quiet zone where, like, for example, let's say I've got a, a number of, of pieces, fragments, um, just kind of in a manuscript, and I can uh, print it out and then start to really look for the, the points of intersection um, so I can organize them. And, uh, you know, once I have sort of a general framework, then, then that's when I really try to enter the dream um, and, you know, go into the individual fragments and, and flesh them out. And then, you know, it's almost like swimming uh, where, I'm, it, you know, it feels fluid and I'm looking for that, that um, ideal, you know, when you get to the end of the lane and you, <laughs> you know, you have that good turn and, and, and head back out. That's, that's what I'm looking for. And, um, in those intersections between fragments. Um, so, and if I'm starting from scratch, uh, I always need to, um, write, uh, in my journal, you know, pen and paper, the old fashioned way I can never just start on the computer. So, um, that's where, you know, I tend to have, um, I need uh, some outside influences for inspiration, whether, you know, I'm just going to an art gallery or something just to get myself in the mood and then, going off with my journal or, uh, you know, um, take a walk in the woods or something, you know, I, I kind of need something to prime the pump and then I can go and quietly just dream up some ideas. Yeah, that's great. You touched upon so many cool things. Um, like, you know, going to an art gallery and sometimes, uh, I haven't asked this in a, in a while, but I, I, I like to ask this of writers uh, of like, what other artistic media do you consume to help spark interest or, and um, inform sort of your bread and butter. So like going to an art gallery to help 
spark your writing? Like what, what, what kind of things like that do you indulge in to help your writing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's a great question. And for me, um, when I first started to get into writing and, and take it seriously, it felt, it felt a little bit like cheating. Like it didn't feel like part of the work. Um, and it wasn't until I had gotten, I think it's called the artist's way by oh, Julie, yeah. yep. <laughs> you know, where th- this concept of, of making artist dates for yourself, um, to kind of keep yourself well nourished. Um, that was like the first, like, Oh no, this is actually part of the work and, and essential to it. Um, so yeah, for me, I would say, um, going to galleries, uh, going on walks, you know, just getting out in the natural world. Those are, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's meditative. It just, um, it's necessary for me for just getting decluttering the mind with the everyday mechanics. So I, I definitely do that. Um, the other thing for me, honestly, is sometimes watching documentaries, um, watching films, um, that, that for me, um, can be really, um, inspiring. There's one in particular that I'm thinking of. I hope I can remember her name. Um, the documentary was called stories. We tell Sarah was the director, Sarah. Um, I'm kind of spacing on her last name. I, I believe it starts with a P. But the documentary is called Stories We Tell, and it's this wonderful documentary um, about the director herself and her family and this story in her family about her mother and, um, in fact, who was the true identity of Sarah's father. Um, so there's a story about infidelity, and um, and the mother um, had passed away. And so, anyway, the documentary itself was her interviewing all her different family members to get their versions of this family story and then trying to kind of chase, chase down the truth through those means. And it was just, it's just such an interesting study of, of different perspectives and how everybody remembers things differently. And, um, and so it was just, uh, I I feel like it should be a required element of every memoir class ever. Um, But that that was really um, interesting and fruitful for me. So, um, yeah, if I can find documentaries that um, talk about storytelling or, you know, uh, certainly anything that highlights any environmental or social injustice, that will definitely kind of get my juices flowing, too. Yeah, there are some documentaries like I love are, are uh, Jiro or Euro Dreams of Sushi. I don't yeah. know if you've heard. Have you seen that one? <laughs> Mm-mm. Oh, it's so good. I, you know, I've actually watched it like six times. Uh, really? I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it, you know, on, on the surface, it's just about, you know, one of the world's or maybe the world's most famous sushi chef, but it's really about the creative process and like dedication. just dedication to a craft and art. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then also like the search for general. So, uh, about general. So's chicken. Uh, but it's really about the Chinese American experience and surviving and, and the resiliency of the people who came over to this country and how they got a toehold uh, in America through the, you know, the Chinese food industry. Yeah. And uh, it's just so, so brilliant that, you know, they have these great little hooks, these titles that might suggest something different. But underneath yeah. it all, like any good piece of art, it means so much more. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things I just love about, um, sort of studying documentary is, is just, um, looking at how, um, film approaches storytelling and, and kind of what, you know, what that can do to inform our work and really, and, and, and the similarities between film and writing or even, you know, visual art and writing. It's just so, it's just so interesting to, to look at that. I, I actually just spent a couple of weeks up at the Vermont Studio Center for a writing residency. And, you know, as part of that experience, you have the opportunity to go to open studios and really chat with all the visual artists that are there. And, um, and I had this conversation with this painter about, uh, the revision process, you know, I, I was trying to just understand, like, how, how do you revise as a visual artist? What does that look like? And, um, and it was just very interesting. Uh, you know, she talked about how they'll take, like, uh, she would take like a piece of tracing paper or a big, you know, sort of somewhat transparent piece of paper, and then, you know, put it over her painting and then cut out, literally cut out the, the parts of her painting on the tracing paper that she wanted to highlight or, you know, and it's a way of, of, of sort of looking at it to see, you know, what if I bring this to light or I put more emphasis on this part of the painting or what if I cover this up? And um, it was just interesting to, you know, hear that and think about like, how, how is that similar to what I do as a writer um, when I'm playing around with my own work? So I, I really feel like all the different forms can inform all the other different art forms can really inform our writing. Do you have uh, a a process where whereby like you sort of create a a greater vocabulary? Like do do you log words that are cool and uh, just kind of keep them stowed away and be like, oh, I can use this really neat word somewhere? Like, do you kind of geek out on on the language and the words? Gosh, I don't know. I've never thought of that before. I think I geek out more so on the on structure mm-hmm. and, and metaphor, if you will. Um, you know, like I'll, gosh, it could be, you know, just a landscape thing. And I'll think to myself, gosh, you know, that really resembles something in my life or yeah, I, I tend to be more image driven than, I mean, certainly language is the form I'm working in, but, um, but for me, it's very much image. And then it, then it's uh, a matter of, you know, finding the words to express whatever image I'm obsessing about. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what does research or what does your process of research look like? And how do you organize the stuff that you collect from wherever it is you get it? And before you sort of start writing, like what, right. what does that process look like? I, sometimes I will lose myself in the research, um, actually to the detriment of my work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, that's an area that I do geek out on. And I think some of that is because, um, uh, of my scientific training. Um, you know, I feel like I've got to have, got to have the info, got to have the footnotes, uh, even though they don't ultimately end up in, in the piece, I I feel like I must have them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, often, let's say for example, for this owl piece, I'll, I'll just have, you know, some, uh, some things that have interested me like, Oh gosh, you know, I know there's a a tension between the barred owl and the spotted owl population. Like what exactly does that look like? And, you know, when did barred owls start moving westward? And, um, and so I, I tend to, um, disappear into, um, 
online research for that. And really, you know, I guess I would say um, it's almost like I, I need I have questions about the the topic of interest and then I have to figure out, well, how am I going to answer those questions and where do I need to go to answer those questions? And so um, that will kind of take me to, um, you know, the online resources or the library or what have you. Um, and it, it can be somewhat of a rabbit hole, you know, where, um, I'll be in there and then I'll think, oh, well, look, that's really interesting. I wonder more about that. And I do have to sometimes, um, reel myself back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, for me, it's kind of driven by this, like, what, what questions do I have about this topic and, and how do I, where do I need to go to find them? And then ultimately, once I have that information, then I can kind of start to trim the fat a little bit and, um, and, um, and think like, okay, so now what's relevant really to, to, um, the emotional kernel here that I'm working on. Yeah. Roy Peter Clark talks about uh, a zero draft, which is like, it kind of gets you out of the, the potential crutch of excessive research it's like sometimes it's really easy to do like productive procrastination by just research, research, research. I just need one more thing. This, that he's like, you know what? You can't be afraid to start early in what he calls a zero draft. Like you could be 75% what you deem uh, enough research, but he he thinks he's like, you should just start writing and then see what holes you may need to fill in backfill at that point. Cause at least it start, you got to start doing the work at some point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult, it's difficult. And I, I have found myself where I'll have um, a piece pretty well structured and some parts are really thoroughly researched and some parts are just not. And then, you know, I've just got to, um, you know, I'll lose myself in that. And uh, you, you referenced, you know, swimming earlier as kind of a metaphor and that's kind of like a real perfect, um, way to see the research or the creative process because a lot of people try to get to a sense of flow and uh, you know sort of being you know buoyed by the process and if you're in a flow state and swimming you feel just like buoyed by the water supported by the water and quiet and effortless and right i wonder how how do you approach that like what is how can you how do you obtain that degree of flow in your writing or your research and how do you define that and what does that feel like to you for me, it's, it's about consistency. So I'm kind of able to achieve that, um, that state if I have good long blocks of time. And, uh, certainly if I have several days in a row where I have good long blocks of time, um, I'm a big believer of kind of in it, of in the writing retreat, even if it's not something formalized, like an actual writing residency, just, you know, getting away for a weekend and getting away from your everyday obligations so that you can really achieve a deeper state and and really get yourself into the dream of your piece. For me, uh, just because my life, when I'm able to get away, I can't, you know, I can achieve that. If I'm not, um, I tend to be a night owl. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, after the kids go to bed, I disappear into the basement. Um, and I'm in a place where I'm not afraid to read my work out loud. I don't feel silly about it. You know, it's just kind of this, a room of my own, if you will. And, um, you know, just, um, I can, uh, read and reread something and really get into the rhythm, sort of the musical rhythm of the piece itself. And, um, 
yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the dream state for me. Um, and certainly, you know, when I'm able to actually even move myself, (laughs) when I'm rereading a piece and, and kind of feel that emotion swell up in myself, that's, that's when I know, like I'm really in the zone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, are you like a kind of a binge writer or do you just take a, a, a little chunk each day? You know, some people can write for three to five hours straight, butt in the chair, and mm-hmm. you know, can just do that. Or are you more like you take you know, maybe 45 minute bites and then a little break and then so forth? Like, how do you structure that generative process? I'm not a regular methodical. I just, uh, I just am not. Um, it's, you know, I have these moments of really productive, uh, time periods and then I have dry spells. Um, and so, yeah, I would say more like a binge writer, like when I'm productive, like it's for a good long time and I sort of lose time and I'm, I'm, I tend to be sort of a slow writer because I'm, um, I wish I could be better at this, just writing and, and generating material without editing. Um, that is really difficult for me. I tend to edit as I go. Um, Mm. and so it's very slow going. And so, um, when I do finally get into a groove, it's a good long run, you know, it's, and, um, and then, you know, if I have to take a break, I kind of can't wait to get back to it because I, you know, I feel like I'm just in that zone, um, and I don't want to lose it. I really envy people who have the discipline to just, you know, get up and, you know, get their writing in for 45 minutes and then go on about their day and actually, you know, be productive over the long run. That's just not how it works for me. I really need to disappear into it and have the time and space to do it. How does, or what does your, your query process and then look like in your submissions of essays and other articles? What does that look like? And then, when the inevitable rejection comes in, what the, <laughs> how do you process that as well? So for submissions, I, um, <laughs> this is going to sound kind of silly, but I often will use uh, contest deadlines as, or, you know, I'll use contest uh, announcements as deadlines. Like that will get me motivated. Like, Oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll try for this. And I think partially because, um, you know, when I got started, I had this real, sort of anxiety about being in the slush pile. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, and I had, you know, I sort of convinced myself, well, if it's a contest submission, then I'm guaranteed a look. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, yeah, so I'll, um, I'll just, I have like a calendar in my office where I've written down a bunch of deadlines and, um, and I'll have like a separate piece of paper where I, uh, have written down the particular contests or particular calls for submission and write down what pieces I think that I have might fit for those. You know, however you're talking about earlier, um, you know, a call for submission often can be that thing that, that makes something gel. So, uh, and then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just go by what, what my gut's telling me if, um, if I'm really motivated by a particular theme or something that has been put out there. Um, I'll work on that. And, um, so I tend to, to do it that way. I, I'm not, I'm a little bit, a little bit less of a, you know, a pitching a, an idea and a query letter. Um, I'm a little more motivated by, you know, Hey, w- we have this theme and we're asking for folks to submit. That's so it's almost like a backward process for him. It's not like I'm coming up with my own ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, when I do get rejections, um, 
yeah, it's just, it's part of the process. I, you know, I keep a sort of spreadsheet about where I've sent out and when I get my rejection and, and then, um, often I'll, you know, just kind of do the revolving door. I'll pitch it out to another place. Um, but if I have gotten, you know, sort of rapid fire rejections on, on a particular piece, then, you know, I'll put it in a drawer or I'll, you know, it's time to like really look at it. And every once in a while I'll get a very nice rejection that, um, you know, just is, uh, validating that like, Hey, this is a great piece, but it's just not fitting our editorial needs. And yeah. And then you're not completely delusional. Exactly. (laughs) It just feels, you know, it's kind of like the acceptance rejection, like, Hey, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, where you feel like, well, okay, so it's a good piece. It's just, you know, I sent it to the wrong place. And I tend to look at my pieces like, you know, a box of puppies that need to find homes and, um, and, you know, often, it, you know, it feels like, well, I, I've got to get them homes quickly before they lose their cuteness. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but sometimes, you know, you know, uh, people want that nice, well-behaved older dog and, and, um, and, uh, you know, it's just a matter of finding the right place for the right, for, for a particular piece. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, let, let's see, before I let you get out of here, let me just ask you, where can where can people uh, get more familiar with your work and find you online and all that good stuff? So if they listen to this, they can go they can go find and read more about you and your work. Yeah, sure. So I have a website. It's um, maryheathernoble.com. I also do have a, an author Facebook page. Um, I'm not quite as active on that. My my um, author website. I do have a a blog that I attend to probably once, twice a month. Um, and usually it's kind of a longer form where I tend to write about social or environmental issues, political issues, that sort of thing. Um, so I've written about, for example, I've written about the PFO contamination in Hoosick Falls and, you know, it's just places where I can explore topics, but not have to, you know, it's a quicker turnaround than doing essays. (laughs) So I do have, uh, connections, uh, to my publications there as well. Um, I do have a Twitter account, although I'm not um, particularly active with it. Um, that is at NH uh, underscore Noble. Um, yeah, so I'm out there. Cool. Very nice. Well, Mary Heather, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. And uh, this is a lot of fun talking shop with you. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Brendan. Great to talk to you. You too. Take care. All right. You too.